welcome to this Bright Club Highlights podcast where we showcase the best bits from the Bright Club on the 13th of July 2012. In this episode, we'll hear how we know our ancestors were getting jiggy with Neanderthals, play the game Biology or Bollocks, and hear some great songs from the fabulous Helen Arney. But first up, we have Christabel Clark telling us why philosophers do not make responsible adults. So I'm, I'm Christabel, and um, I'm not a scientist. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ooh. Wow, I can really feel it. Um, I'm, I'm a philosopher. My subject is philosophy, so, um, so yeah, but people often react like that, actually. Oh, yeah. And then they ask me, um, so what, what can you do with a philosophy degree? Uh, to which, of course, I say, well, I can be a full-time philosopher, <laughs> which is what I am now. And, and then people kind of wonder, what, what do you say to a full-time philosopher? Well, what most people say to me is, Big Mac and chips, please. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe an R, you know. Um, yeah, the, uh, although people also sometimes ask, um, what is philosophy? Uh, not often, because by that point in the evening, most people are unconscious, but <laughs> they're still conscious. And what is philosophy? And I say, well, philosophy is the, the kind of subject where you put all the questions that don't fit under any other subject. Like, where do we come from? Why are we here? Can the Queen ever die? <laughs> um, that's, that's philosophy, and, and not a lot of people kind of know, know too much. The thing most people know about philosophy is, I think, therefore I am. Probably everyone's heard of that. Or, or modern culture's version, which is, I drink, therefore I am. <laughs> uh, I think, therefore I am. So that's, that's from Descartes, and he has a, he has a wonderful argument for this. Uh, it's an argument against um, what's known as scepticism, which is the idea that maybe nothing in this world exists at all. Uh, more commonly known as the plot to the matrix. And, uh, <laughs> that one. And uh, so Descartes' argument is that, well, if I, th I think that nothing at all might exist, well, there must be something doing the thinking. So um, at least I know that I exist. That's great. Really, really nice watertight argument there. Uh, except when it comes to me, because I don't think... Uh, I've actually spent the past 22 years of my entire life perfecting the art of looking like some sort of mental activity is going on behind my face. It's not. It's not. Um, the upshot of this was that I spent a whole month in first year convinced that I didn't exist. <laughs> Which is really, uh, you know, quite, quite upsetting. Um, but eventually that, that accumulated in uh, me falling out of a two-story bathroom window. And that really hurt. So I knew then that I, I did exist. <laughs> uh, don't ask me why I fell out of the window. I don't know. I don't think. But I do exist, so that's all good. And the other thing about philosophy, people tend to have heard of Plato and Socrates. Um, but not a lot of people know that, that philosophy extends way before that. There's a whole bunch of philosophers kind of known collectively as the pre-Socratic philosophers go back about 300 years before Socrates. Um, I often wonder what they were known as before Socrates came along. They can't have been pre-Socratic, so maybe... I don't know, maybe just first names, Phil, George, 
that kind of thing. Um, so philosophy was really flourishing in ancient Greece. You know, the people sitting around in their togas, just philosophizing. It sounds great. Uh, but then we get to 1 BC and we get Christianity and religion. And philosophy kind of takes a back bench there because, you know, suddenly all the questions, they're, they're answered, you know. Where do we come from? God. Why are we here? God put us here. Can the queen ever die? No. <laughs> she, she can't. Yeah, so that philosophy sort of ticked along for a bit, kind of side sideline to religion for a while. And then we started to get some more like wacky ideas in the past couple of centuries. We've got like um, Sartre and the existentialists all going, there's no purpose, nothing has a meaning, you know, there's no, no purpose at all. And they're called sort of, sometimes called nihilists, sometimes called nihilists. Take your pick, nothing matters. <laughs> And um, really kind of some, some out there ideas. We've got Hegel who, um, who says that you can't talk about, you can't talk the truth about anything unless you talk about everything. So I can't talk about that ukulele without also talking about the table and the stage and this room and this world and this universe and, and so on, which is great. And Hegel was one of those kind of stereotypical philosophers. He was, he was like a mumbler and he'd um, mumble away, he'd lecture to his students, his four students. His, he had four loyal students and, and even the loyalist student said he never understood a word. <laughs> of what he was saying. And he had, to, to make matters worse, he had his own terms for all these things. He invented names and terms for kind of the way things were. And so he'd mumble around, kind of speaking his own language. And his four students would try and follow these ideas that he was kind of clearly making up as he went along. And then he had this arch rival, Schopenhauer, also at the University of Berlin, where they were both lecturing. Um, well, I like to think of him as an arch rival. It's kind of commonly known that, that um, Schopenhauer hated Hegel, and no one really knows why. Um, we do know that he scheduled his lectures at the same time, deliberately. So I quite like that. I can imagine him kind of, yeah, yeah, Hegel, I'm going to get your four students. They're going to be mine. Four students. But then they didn't. No one came to his lectures. <laughs> Which I think is quite sad. I can imagine him kind of peering around the door of Hegel's lecture, the huge lecture theatre in the University of Berlin with these four students. He's like, they could have been mine. <laughs> been. But they weren't. And you kind of wonder, with philosophers like Hegel mumbling along in their own kind of world, you wonder like, how much they know um, how great they are at philosophy. And did he know he was going to go down in history? His, his philosophy grades were good, so it didn't matter too much about the history. No, okay, I should have left that one out. Um, but no, Hegel's great. Um, but there are, there are some downsides to philosophy, and you, you spend all your time kind of thinking about these crazy concepts. It can make you come across a bit strange in everyday life. For instance, if your, your friends try and take you out clubbing, and you just want to sit in front of an open fire smoking a pipe and pandering to your stereotype. <laughs> you can't. And they're like, oh, you come on, you, you promise you do this with apparent enthusiasm. You promise you pretend to have a good time, you know. And, and you're all, all like tied up in the quest for truth, humanity's quest for truth. And then all your friends are like, you're such an asshole. <laughs> Um, so that happens quite a lot, and and um, 
and also, so you, you have to you have to kind of keep a lid on it a bit. Um, for instance, the other day I, I bought my mum a birthday present. Um, it was a really rubbish birthday present. It's like a last minute choice. You'll look around the shop. Oh, there's a fridge magnet, uh, which says, "If mothers were flowers, I'd pick you." <laughs> And you uh, kind of thought, well, she's either either going to cry or kind of vomit. I think probably the latter. Um, but she didn't. She 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 read it, and and to my complete disbelief, her eyes started welling up. She got really emotional. She said, "Is that really true? Would you, would you pick me?" And so there's this inner voice in my head going, I "Must tell the truth." And then, <laughs> and then this, this other voice kind of going, "Must be a good child." So, kind of at war with one another I end up going well no, you see, see to be honest picking you doesn't even come into the equation at all really it doesn't even setting aside all of the arguments against free will I can honestly say I'm just the product of ancestors who've you know come together trying to form some sort of purpose superficial purpose against the ultimately purposeless fabric of our reality and you know and ultimately resulting in the pairing of you and my father I mean if the choice is anyone's at all we'd really want to say it was your choice but then that in itself is highly dubious given that all events are caused by something which is caused by previous events and arguably every event is predetermined and therefore we have no free will at all and I could not have picked you. <laughs> Luckily for, for me, um, my mum was so overwhelmed by emotion from the fridge magnet. I think all she heard of that was picked you. <laughs> so she was still happy with that. So that's okay. Um, and, then, and, and then, of course, Socrates um, ended up being killed, um, sentenced to death because of this sort of thing, this kind of terrible behaviour that philosophy leads you to. Um, so the idea was that Socrates was, was sentenced to drink poison, drink hemlock, on trumped-up charges of corrupting the youth of Athens. Um, but I, I can now honestly say I think those, those charges might have been quite accurate. And this comes from my own experience. I was babysitting the other night. And this is not going to be nearly as dark as it kind of started out. Uh, no, it's, this is nice, not that nice. Uh, I was babysitting this little kid. And, and she said, oh, mummy says, um, says you're a student. What do you study? I said, I study philosophy. She goes, oh, was that like questions? I said, yeah, it's questions. It's like, um, why is the sky blue? Where do we come from? Is it really ethically justifiable that you sit and watch CBeebies every day when there are kids in the third world starving to death? Um, questions like that. She said, oh, questions look quite thoughtful. I thought, yeah, I'm being a good influence here. I'm like the cool aunt. And uh, so I went home. And the next uh, a few days later, I got a, got a knock on my door from these angry parents. I said, our child hasn't eaten for three days. <laughs> And it's your fault, it's because of you, we know it's your crazy, wacky philosophy ideas. You're responsible. To which I was completely outraged at this. I said, Mr. and Mrs. Egan, I have been called many things in my life, but having just caused malnourishment and severe emotional trauma in your seven-year-old girl, I fail to see how the label responsible <laughs> is at all appropriate in this situation. So uh, the moral of the story is, go away and study philosophy. That was Christabel Clark. Now, at this Bright Club, we were treated to music by star of Festival of the Spoken Nerd and science songstress extraordinaire Helen Arney. We've got three of her songs in this podcast, and here's the first. 
This is a love song, and uh, it's a love song for mathematicians. And anyone who, who has an understanding of maths and wants to maybe woo someone with a couple of equations, choice equations. It's not very high-level maths, don't worry, don't worry. I mean, we've had some pretty outstanding concepts up here tonight, and I'm sure there will be some more, but it's, it's pre-GCSE-level maths. To be honest, it's mostly just innuendo and biscuit-based puns, if I'm being totally honest. Statistically, I love you. And mathematically, I need you. And graphically, I want you. And on average, I'm, I'm going to make you mine. Just to check, when I use the word graphically, I don't mean in a sort of X-rated top shelf sort of way. I mean like a graph, right? Just so we're all on the level there. Okay. Well, you're beautiful, and my love for you is irrational, and it's constant, non-recurring, and it's infinite, and you can use it to calculate the circumference of a circle of any known diameter. <sighs> Maybe that's not love. Maybe I'm just thinking of pi. Statistically, I love you. <laughs> if you were a logarithm, I'd be your exponential. When you grasp my arithmetic, I find it rather sensual. I'm not very proud of that line. <laughs> Give me your raw data and I'll show you my conclusion. Oh, I'm inordinately proud of that line. <laughs> Give me a new equation and I'll name a biscuit after you. You ready for these? Like uh, the German inventor of calculus and deeply chocolatey biscuit. Choco Leibniz. <laughs> you might not go for that one. There is the English equivalent. Fig Newton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a cheer. He's never had a cheer before. Well done. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're, we're not leaving the rest of Europe out of this. There's French mathematician uh, Petit Fourier. <laughs> Someone groaned over there, that's fine, don't worry. You're right, it's technically a cake. <laughs> Thomas Hobsnob. I think the dance really helps when I do that. Pythagoras Cream. Yeah, you're right, that one doesn't exist yet. That's just because Mr McVitie won't answer my letters. All my faxes, all my emails, all the bricks through the window, there will be one one day. Statistically, I love you. Therefore, logically, I need you. And rhetorically, do I want you? And theoretically, you are already mine. 
And following on the mathematical theme, next up is the statistically living Jimmy Liu. Cheers. Oh, thanks a lot. It's absolutely fantastic to be here tonight, um, especially to be sharing a stage with Izzy and Helen, uh, two of the uh, many lovely women whose videos I enjoy watching on the internet. Um, so... <laughs> um, <laughs> My name's Jimmy Liu, I'm originally from Australia and uh, Brisbane, and I came here about two years ago to start my PhD. Uh, I work out at the Wellcome Trust Sang Institute where I do um, uh, statistical genetics. So as I was preparing this, I was thinking about, oh, well, you know, well, what is statistical genetics? And, and one thing I did realize was that it's really not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the other day I sat in front of my computer about to start writing this material, and uh, I did what most scientists do before they start researching a new topic. I went to Google, um, I typed in genetics jokes. <laughs> I have to say the, the material that did come out was pretty poor and most of them revolved around puns along, uh, around the word gene. Um, for example, <laughs> did you hear about uh, the biologist who was really fashionable? He had designer genes. <laughs> See what I mean? See what I mean? <laughs> so I won't subject you to any of that for the rest of the evening. Um, but statistical genesis, the other thing I learned about it is that our job's kind of quite boring as well. Um, so we're not like other biologists who get to go out in the field, you know, collect samples or uh, play with model organism, mice, you know, zebrafish, or I don't even get to wear a lab coat or do experiments. <laughs> My job consists of sitting in an office in front of a computer, most of the time switching between doing proper work Facebook and, <laughs> and BBC Sport, um, <laughs> which I guess in one way is a good thing, because apart from the doing work bit, that's pretty much my weekends anyway. Um, <laughs> but no, having, no, no, having said that, uh, my, my, my Facebook time at work has toned down a bit since my supervisor added me as a friend. <laughs> so, so what, anyway, back, 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 to, back to science. Uh, what is statistical genetics? So statistical genetics study genetic variation. Uh, at the same Institute, we're very much interested in human genetic variation. Uh, I'm sure most of the people here in the room know uh, DNA is a very large molecule that's found in the nucleus of each of our cells. Uh, it consists of, uh, it's made of four different chemical compounds, which we refer to as the letters A, C, G, and T. And it's a sequence of these letters that uh, determines what species you are and makes each of us unique. So the human DNA sequence contains about 3 billion pairs of these letters, uh, which is huge, um, 25,000 genes. Uh, not just in terms of the amount of data it contains, but just the physical size of it. If you were to take all the DNA from one of your cells, stretch it out from that famous double helix shape, stretch it out in a straight line, it would go from the floor to above this roof, higher than this roof. In fact, if we took the DNA from all 30 trillion of your cells, took it out, unwound it, laid them out, end to end, you'd probably be dead. Um, <laughs> so, so one way of thinking about genetic variation is, is um, to compare the DNA between individuals. Uh, so uh, if you, for example, take your own DNA and compare it with the person next to you, you might find one letter difference per every thousand letters or so. Uh, if it's more than a thousand letters, anything significantly more, then you're probably sitting next to a parent or a sibling. Uh, and given that this is East Anglia, you're probably inbred. Um, <laughs> I, I hope you two aren't a couple. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so the other cool things we can learn from comparing the DNA sequence of people is, is about our own ancestry. 
So what they found is, and I think this is quite poetic actually, is that when you compare the DNA from different populations all around the world, all Asians, Europeans, and basically all non-modern-day Africans can trace, trace their ancestry back to a single migration event out of Africa about 60,000 years ago. This is quite good, because um, we also find out from DNA evidence that once we left Africa, we started shagging the local Neanderthals. <laughs> now, they found this out by... Um, a few years ago, they discovered some Neanderthal DNA. And when they compared this DNA with that of modern humans, they found segments of, probably most people in this room will have segments of their DNA that are more closely related to Neanderthals than present-day Africans. Which I guess explains John Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, topical humour. Um, uh, so the other thing we learned from uh, comparing people's DNA, and I guess this is my own research area too, is uh, we get to learn more about the nature of disease. Uh, geneticists classify disease into two broad, two broad categories. Uh, firstly, we have what are called Mendelian disorders, which are diseases that are caused by a single gene. Uh, in this case, you'll, if you have the gene, depending on the, the mode of inheritance, either recessive or dominant, uh, you'll have the disease. Um, so these include, they're usually rare diseases, so they include things like Huntington's, cystic fibrosis, uh, being born a ginger, um, <laughs> also some forms of uh, diabetes. <laughs> Uh, and to study these, we basically take, uh, we look at families where some individuals have the disease and see how it segregates among family members. Uh, the other type of disease is what we call complex diseases. Um, this doesn't sound as cool as Mendelian diseases, and I think it's kind of because we call them complex diseases, so we geneticists could feel smarter than we actually are. Um, so these are diseases where it's, a, it's multiple genetic variants across multiple genes, often hundreds, maybe even thousands, plus the environment that affects disease. So these include common diseases like uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes, uh, mental disorders such as schizophrenia, depression, uh, as well as uh, most forms of cancers. Now to study these diseases, um, the design is actually quite simple. Uh, we take a whole bunch of individuals with a particular disease and compare the DNA with a healthy population. Uh, so instead of, uh, right now it's actually quite expensive to get all three billion letters from every individual. So instead we, we use what are called genetic markers. We take about a million of these markers that essentially mark out the spaces along the genome that commonly vary between individuals. And for each of these markers, we do statistical tests and uh, until we find a hit. So we basically keep trying until we find a positive outcome uh, and then we go and tell our friends about it. Um, <laughs> which kind of describes my dating life at the moment. Um, <laughs> And also, uh, so yeah, once we get the positive outcome, we get to uh, uh, pull down the genes and find out more about biological function, which is actually nothing like my dating life. <laughs> Sorry, I got that one off the internet. <laughs> um, so lastly, um, we're actually at the stage where any individual can take their own uh, DNA and have it analyzed by a private, ge a private genetic testing company. Uh, so I did this a few months ago um, for about $300. I got sent a little a plastic uh, tube where I put my saliva in, sent it back, and got my results. So I log into a fancy website where they have things like disease risk, ancestry, my genetics for a whole bunch of different traits. Um, so it was really eye-opening results. Um, I found out that I have likely brown eyes, black hair, and am of East Asian origin, um, <laughs> which I think you know, really got my money's worth there. <laughs> but it, Probably the most interesting thing I found from this uh, genetic testing was um, there's a gene that uh, allows you to detect the smell of asparagus in your urine. I, I, I can't imagine 
how they came up with the study, or what was going through the scientist's head, or how they got funded. That was the, that's the most, uh, yeah, that's the thing about this. But anyway, apparently I can detect the smell of asparagus in my urine after I, I piss. Um, and I didn't know this before. I mean, this is not something you, you realize. So next time I had asparagus, sure enough. <laughs> but no, this, this gene is actually quite interesting because we know it's associated with uh, if you can smell asparagus or not, but we're actually not sure what it actually does. Um, we're not sure if it's involved in the production of asparagus metabolites in our urine, or if it's actually part of the um, involved in olfactory receptors in our nose, whether or not we can detect certain odors. So I think the natural follow-up study is not to ask if you can smell asparagus in your own urine, but if you can smell it in someone else's urine. And I think this is one thing we can all, you know, uh, go home and, and have a try yourselves. Um, so next time you have asparagus, um, find the nearest person, piss on them, and see if they mind. All right, thanks very much. And now let's find out a bit more about Jimmy's day job out at the Sanger Institute. I guess the main thing we're trying to do is to look for the genes that make some of us more susceptible to certain diseases than others. Um, and I suppose statistical genetics generally involves, well, for us anyway, it involves comparing the genomes of people with the disease to those without the disease and trying to find the regions of the genome that are statistically associated with disease status. So it's a question of looking at the genome, sort of lining it up and seeing yes. where little bits sort of pop out as the, exactly. the yeah. people that have the disease have these things, but the yep. people that don't, don't. Yep. yep, find statistical correlations between um, disease status and, and your genotype, basically. What sort of diseases are we talking about here? Because I'm guessing we're not talking about the ones which are so-called Mendelian diseases, which no, are kind of true. one gene causes yes. this disease. So these, these are more complex diseases. So things, common diseases like diabetes, um, schizophrenia, cancers... Uh, so these are where there, there are going to be multiple genes, hundreds, maybe sometimes even thousands of genes that affect your disease, plus obviously environmental influence as well. Um, generally, each individual gene will have a very small effect, which is why we need huge samples to find statistically significant um, associations. And how do you actually go about looking for the genes that are contributing to these diseases? Um, so we take uh, what are called genetic markers, uh, the uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are basically single base pair differences um, along the genome. Um, and then once we find a statistically significant association with one of these markers, we then look into the biology and say, okay, where does this marker fit uh, in terms of our understanding of biology? Is it in a coding region of a gene? Does it turn the gene on or off? Or often the case will be more to do with gene regulation. So someone with a certain um, allele will have a more highly expressed version of a different gene than someone else. And this is what ultimately uh, affects their uh, disease status. So what diseases are you particularly working on at the moment? Um, so for me, I'm mainly focused on uh, autoimmune liver diseases. But essentially, I mean, the te techniques we use can basically be applied to any uh, genetic disease. And once we know that a particular sort of place in the genome is involved in a disease, what can we do with that information? There are two things that are directly relevant to that. Um, firstly, obviously understanding more about the biology of uh, the disease. So we look at the gene, what's it involved in, the pathways, um, what other genes are you know, interconnected and ultimately you know, how, how this affects disease uh, progression and status. Um, the other thing is, and this is more in its infancy, is we can do genomic prediction. So based on your own DNA sequence, uh, we can say you might have a 20% increased chance of developing type 2 diabetes based on your genetics, for example. 
So I suppose with things like diabetes, it might be useful to know that, like, right, you're more likely genetically to get this, so you need to be more careful with your diet. But with some diseases, is it perhaps a bit of a sort of ethical issue of whether to tell someone if they can't do anything about it? Absolutely. Well, having said that, I mean, the complex diseases we study, uh, generally you can do something about it, things like diabetes, even cancer. Personally, I think, you know, each to their own. I think if someone wants to know, absolutely fine. Then if not, that's fine as well. And do you think it might in the future not just lead to being able to inform people saying, well, perhaps you should be more careful, but perhaps lead to treatment? Yeah, that's hope. I mean, as we understand more about biology, hopefully, for example, if a specific variant causes a gene to be knocked out, then maybe we can develop gene therapy to replace that gene in someone's body. Um, that, that, that's the goal, um, understanding more about biology and finding treatments for these diseases. Jimmy Liu there. Still to come, we'll be hearing all about Saturn's moons and playing biology or bollocks. But now it's time for the second song from Helen Arney, lamenting the distinct lack of sunshine we've been having this summer. So uh, I've got a little theory, uh, which is that the sun has got his huff on. (laughs) I used to be someone, now I'm just another sun. One of a hundred thousand billion billion You treat me insignificantly Name a tabloid after me Synonymous with paparazzi Just a backdrop for Brian Cox on TV Since Edwin Hubble it's never been the same Those pictures of other stars pushed me out of the frame You never even gave me a proper name Like Alpha Centauri or Epsilon Tauri or Delta Libre or HR2948 Or Kevin You've achieved nuclear fusion Oh, well done Made some helium from a little hydrogen Well, every second I did that to 600 million tons If I was Marilyn Monroe, you Stacey Solomon, you should have stopped at Copernicus, then I'd still be the centre of your universe. You say I'm just an average ball of gas, (laughs) I say you're talking out of Uranus, I'm never sure if I've pronounced that right to be honest. Have you ever tried to put a hat on there? (laughs) Hip, 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 hooray. I'll be a red giant someday and your world will go up in flames. But in the meantime, please join my Facebook fan page. Thanks very much. Love from the sun. Sticking with Outer Space, our next performer is Sheila Kanani, who's just completed a PhD at University College London. 
Before we hear her set from Bright Club and get to play biology or bollocks, Sheila describes what she was working on and why Saturn's moons could be our best bets for finding life elsewhere in the solar system. So um, I'm particularly looking at Saturn and its magnetic field and the um, plasma environment within Saturn's magnetic field. Now, a plasma is a soup of um, ions and electrons, so it behaves in kind of strange ways. Um, And it's interesting because it tells us sort of, if you imagine Saturn to be like a world and the the planet and the moons are all different islands um, and there's a sea in between them. And we want to learn more about the planet and the, these islands. But the best way or one of the ways of finding out more about it is by looking at the sea and by studying the plasma. Essentially, we're studying that sea, that matter in between the planet and the moons. And I'm looking at how the plasma interacted with the moons and the rings and the planet and specifically um, and trying to build up a bigger picture. Um, there's lots of magnetized planets in our solar system, Saturn being one of them um, and Earth being another. Um, inside the magnetic field of Saturn, there are things like the rings and the moons that can create plasma, and we don't have that at Earth. So when all the solar wind comes from the sun to the Earth, it just impacts the magnetic field and affects it. But at Saturn, there's also plasma from the magnetic field of Saturn, which is pushing back on the solar wind coming from the sun. So it's, it's similar, but it's also very different to that of Earth. So it's interesting to look at it and measure it and um, figure out why it's similar, why it's different. And you can learn all kinds of things about Saturn and also about Earth by studying different magnetospheres. And being inside the magnetosphere could potentially help make Saturn's moons very interesting to astrobiologists. The magnetic field of the planet does protect the moons, uh, especially the inner moons, from the effects of the solar wind. Um, some of the moons are quite far out and they do venture into interplanetary space and outside of the, the magnetic field sometimes. But some of the moons, such as Enceladus, are quite close in and are always protected. The moons of Saturn are really interesting for various reasons. I've already mentioned Enceladus, and Enceladus is covered in ice, but at the south pole there are cracks in the ice. And there's actually a a geyser spewing out from these cracks, and we know from the Cassini mission that that geyser is made from um, liquid water and a few other elements. And models suggest that that means that there's a subsurface ocean underneath the surface, of Enceladus, um, and it's a liquid water ocean. So that's certainly interesting for astrobiological missions. There's also one of the largest moons in the solar system, Titan. And Titan is very interesting because it has weather systems and clouds and rain and rivers and lakes, um, but they're not water, they're liquid methane. And even though it's not liquid water, it's interesting to us because um, we believe that that's what the Earth was like in its primordial state. So perhaps if you could go to Titan in five billion years' time, you might see life there, even though the conditions are kind of different. If we were going to find life in our solar system, these kinds of moons would certainly be more likely than, for example, Mars or Venus. It wouldn't be life like us. It would be sort of microbes or um, very tiny organisms. Um, For example, like we've seen um, these extremophiles, tiny little organisms that can survive under the surface ice in the Arctic. And if we drill through the ice and measure the water, you can see these extremophiles that that can live there. So if they can live in extreme conditions on Earth, then why can't they live in extreme conditions on a moon going around Saturn? 
well, obviously it's all speculation, but it's still very interesting. And the sort of the, the implications for astrobiology could be uh, very interesting indeed. So I'm not really qualified to be up here today talking about life because I'm a scientist and my idea of life is uh, sitting in a small room in the dark behind a state-of-the-art computer analysing data. And then when I go home, I uh, sit in a small room in the dark behind a state-of-the-art computer. And I'm not even that geeky. I've only seen Star Trek once. And my favourite bit in the film is where that little green robot guy goes, Spock, your father am I? That, that was Star Trek, right? Um. If you really want to see how scientists live, you should come and visit my lab. Um, there's this guy who comes into work. Uh, we'll call him Bert, as to protect his identity. Um, he comes into work in a Battlestar Galactica costume, like different ones every day. He honestly thinks he's building components of a spaceship, not a space satellite. Um, there's another guy. Let's call him Ernie. Um, he comes into work in a suit, which is better than the Battlestar Galactica costume. He, he teams it with green wellies, no matter what the weather is. And he has long brown hair that he slicks back, whether it's water or grease, sweat, some other kind of substance. I don't have a clue what he does with it. Um, on top of that, he puts colour pens, coloured felt-tip pens in his top pocket. He has every single colour of felt-tip pen in this pocket, so it's like bulging out here. <laughs> Fair enough, you know, you might need a colour pen, except he never does because he's a black hole scientist. He doesn't need colour pens, <laughs> ever. On top of that, he genuinely thinks a 26-hour day is better for him than a 24-hour day, and he actually runs on a 26-hour day. <laughs> now, I'm a planetary scientist, so you might think I'm up here to talk to you about life on other planets. But, well, actually, you're right. Um, so life on other planets, or astrobiology, as NASA like to call it, they're so sure that there's aliens on other planets that they've actually teamed up with the United Nations and formed the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, or UNUSA, as they like to call it. And they've even appointed a space ambassador. Mrs. Othman is going to be the lady who makes the tea when the aliens come to call. <laughs> but, NASA, I have news for you, in my opinion, Astrobiology is bollocks, <laughs> complete bollocks. And the reason astrobiology is bollocks is because we haven't found life on other planets yet. So it shouldn't be called astrobiology. It should just be called biology, really. And we've already got enough biologists in the world. Um, <laughs> I'm a physicist. Um, so I want to test this with you tonight. Don't groan at me. This is how scientists have fun. We do tests. Um, I'm going to put some pictures on the screen. And you have to shout bollocks if you think they're made up, or biology if you think they're real. OK? Let's have a practice. On the count of three, shout biology. OK? One, two, three. Biology. Oh, that was quite good. OK, next, bollocks. One, two, three. And on the count of three, shout boobies. One, two, three. Boobies. That's amazing what I could get you to do. Awesome. Right, let's start. Here's the first picture. Can you all see him? What is it? 
Bollocks, thank you. He really is bollocks. He's called Ball Chilean. He's from Men in Black 2, and he was just to get you warmed up. Uh, this is real biology. He's called Deinococcus radiodurans, or Conan the Bacterium, as scientists jokingly like to call him. Um, he can survive all kinds of really cool things, including acid ionizing radiation, and he can repair his own DNA. Pretty cool. Oh, not sure. This is real biology too. They're called Cygnoglossidae, or tongue fish. They're one kind of tongue I don't want down my throat, ever. Um, they live at the bottom of the ocean in hydrosulfuric vents, which go up to 200 degrees C. So they're pretty cool too. And the last one. Biology. Yeah, this little guy's biology too. He's called a tardigrade. He's incredible. He lives at the bottom of the ocean, high up on mountains in really cold temperatures, in really hot temperatures, and he can live for 10 years without water. And he's the only creature known to man to be taken into space exposed to outer space without a spacesuit, although can you imagine how cute they'd look in spacesuits? <laughs> without a spacesuit, brought back to Earth, and he can still reproduce. I think that's amazing. So hopefully what I've shown you is that all the really cool biology is not from aliens, but it's actually here. Therefore, astrobiology is bollocks. <laughs> but there is a clause because Recently, we've been finding out that actually humans could be from outer space. And that would mean that we are all aliens. That's quite, well, some of you look like aliens. Um, so I think the hottest life form on the planet, uh, Professor Brian Cox, he, um, oh, he, he told me something the other day. He looked deep into my eyes through that TV screen and uh, he, he said to me in that dreamy accent, we are all made from stars. He's actually from Liverpool, didn't you know? Um, <laughs> but he got me thinking, right? If we are all made from stars and stars are in outer space, then we're all aliens, right? And if he says it, we, it must be true. <laughs> I really, really, really love Cox. Something went wrong with the microphone there? Um, <laughs> And that also got me thinking, if you could be a star, what kind of star would you be? Would you be like a main sequence yellow star like the sun? Or would you be like a massive red giant or a supernova or a spinning pulsar? And then I thought, well, I can only be one type of star. And this kind of star does really exist. I would be a brown dwarf. <laughs> it's true. Um, another theory of why we're all aliens is that actually comets brought life to Earth. So comets are famous for being these big dirty snowballs that brought about the death of the dinosaurs. But current theory suggests that the Earth used to be completely barren until a comet came along and crashed into it, Armageddon style, but thankfully without Bruce Willis in a vest. Um, crashed into the Earth, melted, released all these life-giving, building-blocky type things, mixed with the barren Earth, and hey presto, here we are today. That can only mean one thing. Women are from Venus, and men are from Uranus. <laughs> Talking of Uranus, um, there are nine incredible planets in our solar system. Yes, it did say nine. So recently, Pluto has been downgraded to a dwarf planet, which I disagree with because it's a dwarf planet, 
but that doesn't make it any less of a planet. I'm a dwarf person, but I'm still a person, thank you very much. Anyway, we also have the uh, winged messenger Mercury, who flew too close to the sun. Uh, we have Venus, the other female planet in the solar system next to Earth. Then we have the blood-red god of war, Mars, uh, the king of kings and the biggest planet in the solar system, Jupiter. Um, then we have God's favorite planet, Saturn. He liked it so much, he put a ring on it. Uh, you've all heard that. Um, sea green Neptune and tiny little Pluto. Oh, and of course, Uranus. Uranus. I, I'm a 29-year-old almost doctor of planetary science, and that still makes me laugh. So imagine my utter content when I found a paper in Nature in the, like, the highest science journal ever called Chemical Processes in the Deep <laughs> Interior of Your Anus. Actual paper. It's actually really interesting very scientific. The scientists um, create a synthetic Uranus, which they call SU, S-U, you know. Um, they run a bunch of tests, they do computer programming, loads of really hard maths, and they come up with a conclusion. They have found that, deep in the interior of Uranus, there is an abundance of H2O and CH4. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Scientists have proven that there is an abundance of methane in Uranus. <laughs> That's where all the money goes. Um, and finally, this is my favorite picture depicting life. It is a picture taken during the Apollo era. Uh, nonetheless, the Apollo 11 mission, which took Neil and Buzz to the moon. There was a third person involved in that mission. Does anybody know his name? Oh, a few people, normally people don't know because they're not geeks and you are. Yes. <laughs> Michael Collins. So, Michael Collins flew the command module while um, Buzz and Neil got to jump on the moon and get really famous. Um, Michael Collins was alone for over 24 hours and flying this command module while the other guys were off having fun. And he got so close to landing on the moon, so close, but he never quite made it. What he did do was take this picture, which I absolutely love. So you've got, uh, th this was taken when they were coming back to the command module. So you've got Neil and Buzz in the eagle in the front and Earth with all the life forms on it in the back. This means that every single human being that has ever been on planet Earth is in this picture, except for poor old Michael Collins. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Sheila Kanani. Well, time's almost up for this Bright Club Highlights podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and a huge thank you to Christabel Clark, Jimmy Liu, Sheila Kanani, and Helen Arnie, plus all of the other brilliant performers on the night. And now we've got one final song from Helen to play us out. I've been watching your behaviour And I think you're in the you're lonely, well, I'm here to save you. Let's get out of here and get us a room, yeah. Let's make love like animals, yeah. I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
Let's make love exactly like other animals. Get your zoology textbook out. Turn to page 69, everyone. It's the one with a really thumbed down corner. I think it's axolotls. Pretty exciting. Let's make love like rabbits a hundred times a week. Let's make love like hedgehogs, you know, carefully. Let's make love like salmon living in fresh water. You do it in the bath and I'll come and pick it up later. Let's make love like animals, like dogs, doggy style. It's been happening since the Stone Age, like cats, but that's doggy style as well, so it doesn't really count. Let's make love exactly like other animals, but mostly dogs. Open up that Wikipedia page. Let's make love like anglerfish. Yeah, you know this one. It's kind of complicated, but it's worth it. You use your highly developed olfactory sense to detect me from many miles when swim towards me for about five or six days. And then you bite me. <laughs> that releases an enzyme that then dissolves your skin and your flesh and your face and your fins, leaving only a pair of genitals attached to the side of my body. Just leave them there till it's convenient. Pretty handy, actually. And this happens a lot of times to female anglerfish, and they just collect them, like football cards, Christmas decorations, Pokemon. And then if you find a really old female anglerfish um, in the deep ocean, this will have happened many times in her life, and she will be literally covered in balls. Let's make love like animals, yeah. It's like a biology GCSE, but sexy. I know what will get you in the mood to love like an animal. I'll get out my David Attenborough DVDs, yeah. So we're sitting on the sofa with a cup of tea. <laughs> this is not getting us anywhere. I've never seen a praying mantis in... HD. Do you know what they just did? You know, just afterwards, she ripped his head off and ate it. Do you want to do that one? <laughs> yeah. He said no. Guess we'll end up being the same animals we've always been. Pandas. Thanks very much. That's the animal song.